0: Well, Center Church family, one of uh, my very favorite things about the summer is the opportunity to invite godly Bible teachers, from, uh, Bible teachers from around the country to come and instruct us. And I have the opportunity to introduce you to just such a Bible teacher today. Today, we're going to be hearing from Pastor Rich Bowman. Pastor Rich Bowman is the associate pastor at the Summit Church down in Raleigh, Durham, North Carolina. And before serving in that role, he served as the college director uh, for college ministry at North Carolina Central University, which is a prestigious HBCU in Durham, North Carolina. Carolina. Beyond that, uh, Pastor Rich is a good friend of Center Church, of many of our staff members. Uh, he's a godly man, uh, and I cannot wait uh, to hear from him today. He is married to his wife, Carrie, and they have two wonderful, beautiful uh, daughters, uh, Elena and Isla. He is a friend of Center Church. He is a godly man. He's a, he's a gifted preacher, and so I'm excited for us to hear from him today. So, wherever you are, living rooms or in your car or whatever, let's give our warmest Center Church welcome to Pastor Rich Bowman. Yeah, Rich. Well, good morning, Center Church. Uh, May grace and peace be multiplied to you in the knowledge of God, our Father, and our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Um, I want to give a special thank you to Pastor Josh for the opportunity uh, to allow me to worship with you this weekend. And in the words of Paul, um, though I am not with you in person, um, I am with you in spirit. Uh, this morning, we're going to be in the book of Hebrews, chapter 12, verses 1 through 2. So if you have your Bibles, you can turn there or scroll there with me. And as you are, uh, join me in a quick word of prayer. Gracious Father, our greatest need this morning, God is not an eloquent speaker, but God to see the beauty and the glory of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. And so show us your face, O God. Show us your face that we may leave this place wherever we are, worshiping you. In Jesus' name we pray, and the church said amen. amen. In the summer of 1992, Olympic runner Derek Redmond stood at the starting line in Barcelona eager to run the 400-meter Olympic semifinal race. At this point in his career, although he had suffered a few injuries, he was in peak condition and had already proven to be a great track athlete in 1985 seven years before his appearance in barcelona he broke the british record for the 400 meter relay and in 1986 he won the gold medal for the 4x4 meter relay in both the european and commonwealth games needless to say Derek and his fans believed that he had this race in the bag however unbeknownst to him this would be the last race that he would ever run Runners, take your mark, get set, ready, pow, the gun goes off. And these Olympic athletes start running at full speed, exerting effort and energy, when about 15 seconds into the race, all of a sudden, Derek falls to the ground in agony, holding his hamstring. As the crowd, coaches, and commentators looked stunned at what they were witnessing. In an interview with BBC, Derek said as he was on the ground holding his hamstring in agony, he remembered where he was. He remembered that he was in the Olympic semifinal race. And he said to himself, I am going to finish this race. This might be the last race that I ever run, and so I am going to finish Finally, Derek gets up from the ground, and he begins to hobble around the track, putting one foot in front of the other, when all of a sudden, out of the crowd comes running his father, screaming, Derek, Derek, it's me, your father, and eventually, with the help of his daddy and with tears running down his eyes, he makes it to the finish line with a torn hamstring and a crowd applauding his devotion to finish the race that he had started despite the adversity he had suffered. Derek's story is one of many great illustrations of the Christian race. You see, we all start off running hard after Jesus, but when we do, and we begin to face adversity and affliction, how do we endure to the finish line? When your family and your friends and society begin to view you a certain way because of the faith that you believe, And their opinions begin to weigh on you. How do you not throw in the towel and you keep pressing on to follow Jesus? When you're uncertain about your future and life isn't turning out the way that you expected it to, how do you keep being faithful to what God has called you? When tragedy strikes and an unexpected pandemic hits that's claiming the lives of millions of people and radically alters the way that you live? How do you keep trusting in the promises of God? When when you have a holy discontent with the societal injustices of racism, abortion, sex trafficking, or any other injustice in our world, and you pay the cost for speaking out and speaking up, how do you not grow weary in well-doing and you keep running your race? That's what I want to answer for you this morning from our text in Hebrews. And so if you're there, just say amen wherever you are and follow along with me as we read. Therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us also lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely. And let us run with endurance the race that is set before us. Looking to Jesus... Looking to Jesus, the founder and the perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. It's been said that the writer of Hebrews is addressing three distinct groups of Jews in this book. First, he's addressing the Jews who had actually come to believe and embrace the gospel of Jesus Christ. This would be like those of us who have genuinely repented of our sins, and we have turned to Jesus as our only hope for salvation. Secondly, he's addressing unbelieving Jews, those Jews who were intellectually convinced but spiritually uncommitted. These would, this would be like those of us who um, talk the talk of faith, but we don't walk the walk of faith, right? We say one thing, but our lives do not match up with, actually, with what we actually profess to believe. Finally, he's addressing unbelieving Jews who were exposed to the gospel, but unconvinced that it was true. This group would be like those of us who maybe grew up in the South, in the church, and we grew up hearing the gospel of Jesus Christ. But at some point in our lives, we concluded that this is not true, and I don't want any part of it. Out of these three groups of Jews, the primary audience he's addressing are those believing Jews who were under persecution for embracing the gospel. And as the persecution intensified, they were tempted to drift back into ways of thinking and living that were anti-gospel. For example, it's likely because of persecution and the influence of false teachers, some professing believers began to doubt the deity and the supremacy of Jesus. Hence, in the opening chapter of Hebrews, the author begins by making a case for the supremacy and the deity of Christ. Specifically, he says in chapter 1, Long ago, at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers through the prophets. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his son, whom he appointed the heir of all things, through whom he also created the world. He is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature. And he upholds the universe by the power of his word. After making purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. Having become much more superior to the uh, the angels as the name he has inherited is more excellent than theirs. From these verses alone. We learn that God has spoken to us through his son, Jesus. God has appointed Jesus as the heir or the inheritor of all things. God has created the world through Jesus. Jesus reveals and expresses the exact nature of God. Jesus sustains the universe by the power of his word. Jesus cleanses us from our sins. Jesus is exalted and seated at the right hand of the Father. And Jesus is much more superior than the angels. This is who Jesus is. And neither the author nor Jesus has left room for debating it. It's like what C.S. Lewis once said. I am trying here to prevent anyone from saying the really foolish thing that people often say about him. I'm ready to accept Jesus as a great moral teacher. But I don't accept him to be God. That is the one thing we must not say. A man who is merely a man that said the sort of things Jesus said would not be a great moral teacher. He would either be a lunatic on the level of a man who says he is a poached egg, or else he would be the devil of hell himself. You must make your choice. Either this man was and is the son of God, or else a madman or something worse. You can shut him up for a fool. You can spit at him and kill him as a demon, or you can fall at his feet and call him Lord and God. But let us not come with this patronizing nonsense about his being a great moral human teacher. He has not left that open to us. He did not intend to. You see, to deny the deity and the supremacy of Jesus Christ is to deny Jesus altogether. And these false teachers were guilty of trying to persuade believing Jews to embrace what was false as they persecuted them. And if they chose otherwise, they would continue to persecute. Now, it's not only likely that they were tempted to doubt the deity and supremacy of Jesus... But it's also likely that some begin to doubt the sufficiency of Jesus for salvation. Instead of trusting in Jesus and uh, his finished work alone, they were trusting in their works, in the works of the law. Which is why the author strives really, really hard throughout the book of Hebrews to convince us that Jesus is better. Jesus is a better prophet. Jesus is a, makes a better promise. Jesus is a better hope. Jesus is a better sacrifice. The whole book of Hebrews can be summed up in three words. Jesus is better. This book is all about Jesus, and he provides both warnings to not drift from Jesus and encouragement to keep trusting in Jesus all throughout the book. So in light of that context, chapter 12 opens up with a, with a call for us to run with endurance the race that has been set before us. And there are three things mentioned in this text that are helpful for us enduring in our race. Number one, we must glance at our surrounding examples. Number two, we must get rid of present distractions. And number three, we must gaze at Jesus in the gospel. And so let's unpack this first one together. Look with me back at, first, at verse 1. He says, therefore, since we are surrounded by a great cloud of witnesses, let us also lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely to us. And let us run with endurance the race that is set before us. Now, whenever you see the word therefore, you should always ask the question what is it therefore? And this chapter is there because the author is pointing us back to chapter 11, where he mentions one Old Testament saint after the other who followed God by faith. Of Noah, it says, by faith, he constructed an ark in reverent fear. Of Abraham, it says, by faith, he obeyed God when he was called to leave his country for a foreign land. And by faith, he offered up his son, Isaac. Of Moses, it said, by faith, he refused to be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter. And he chose to be mistreated with the people of Israel rather than to enjoy the fleeting pleasures of sin. And the list can go on and on. But the point is that we are all surrounded by a massive stadium of saints whose lives were marked by faith and obedience and sacrifice and determination to finish their race. And that should encourage us. And it shouldn't encourage us in a way that we worship them for the best of men or men at best. But it should inspire us to know that there is a long list of men and there's a long list of women who are willing to give up so much for the sake of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And this not only applies to all of the Old Testament saints who have gone before us, But it applies to all of the saints at all times, in all areas, in all generations. One story that comes to mind is of an old prominent pastor named Gardner C. Taylor. The dark tunnel of adversity was really, really long for him. At a young age, he lost his father. In college, he suffered a near-death experience. He experienced racial discrimination throughout his life. He suffered the loss of his church by a fire. He received jail time for participating in the civil rights movement in order to help eradicate unjust laws. He lost his first wife and he saw his second wife be physically assaulted. In one of his sermons, this is what he said. I know what it is to have great sorrow. I know what it is to drench your pillow with tears. I even know what it is to hope against hope that you don't wake up the next morning. Life can be difficult. Yet somehow he found a way to fight the good fight, to finish his race, and to keep the faith. This was an ordinary man, an ordinary man who was devoted to truth and who loved Jesus. You may very well be in a place right now where it's very difficult for you to understand how you're going to endure. Or you may not be feeling this type of resolve and determination, but I want to encourage you that there is a long list of people who have run this race. You may be someone right now who's weary and tired of battling against sin. You may be emotionally exhausted from battling with discouragement, despair, and doubt. And you may be overwhelmed from continually walking in the valley of the shadow of death where suffering and pain seems to be your closest companions. Keep fighting your fight. Keep pressing on. Keep running your race. For it is proven through the long list of saints that the Christian race is not an impossible race. The writer goes on to say in verse 1. Let us also, meaning just like our examples, lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely. This leads me to my second point, which is we must get rid of distractions. Notice there are two types of distractions in this text. The first one is a weight, which inherently isn't a bad thing, but neither is it conducive to you running your race. I remember when I was in high school, I used to be a track athlete. And one of the things that I would do before I would actually compete in a race to train was to wear ankle weights. But one of the worst things that I could ever do was to enter a race on a Saturday morning with ankle weights on. It was no way that I was going to win, let alone endure to the end with heavy ankle weights holding me down. That is what the writer is getting at here when he talks about laying aside every weight. I had to do whatever it took and make a deliberate conscious decision to get rid of the ankle weights, right? They are, they, these are things in your life that you must continually get rid of. Put aside and remove your, Remove because they slow you down and they are not conducive to you running and enduring your race. Thus, the problem of a weight is not in what a weight is, it's in what a weight does, and a lot of times, these are good things that become distracting things because we give them inappropriate priority in our lives. Now, we church family, right? So let's just, let's just be honest here. It is a lot easier to scroll social media than it is to search the pages of Scripture, to have our minds renewed in the gospel. It's a lot easier to find our pleasure fix especially in a time like this where many of us are bored. It's a lot easier to find our pleasure fix on Netflix than it is to enjoy the presence of God in prayer. It's a lot easier to be very intentional about planning our summer vacations and planning our summer activities than it is to actually have a Bible reading plan or a plan about how I'm going to make disciples and reach the people in my community and in the nations. Listen, There is absolutely nothing wrong with social media. There is nothing wrong with Netflix. There is nothing wrong with leisure and having a family vacation. But you see, when these good things begin to attract our time and attention more than the best thing, which is Jesus Christ, then we have to ask the question, is this helping or hindering our race? The second distraction that he mentions that we need to lay down is sin sin is any any feeling thought speech or action that comes from the from from a heart that does not treasure and honor and delight in god above all things it's sin that makes us feel jealous in our hearts right we want what other people have because we are not content with all the blessings and goodness god has given us in christ it's sin that leads us to think that money is all that we need because we trust more in the, secure, the earthly security of money than we do the godly security that is offered to us in Jesus Christ. The list can go on and on and on. But the point is that, it, that, that where sin is present in our lives, we, have a, we must make a deliberate conscious choice to fight and get rid of it, to lay it down. One of my favorite sitcoms um, is a sitcom in the 1990s um, named Martin. And it's starring one of the the, the actor, Martin Lawrence. I don't know if many of you have ever heard of him, but when you get a chance, just Google 1990 sitcom Martin. Um, In the sitcom, he played several different roles, and and, and one of my favorite um, roles that he played was a a character by the name of Old Otis, right? And Old Otis was this, like, out of shape, um, just really bad-looking security guard. Um, It it might be a picture there on your screen for you to uh, get a look at that, but but in this particular episode, um, Old Otis is at an ATM machine at a bank, and there's this bodyguard standing next to Old Otis. The bodyguard is at the ATM, typing in numbers, trying to get money. And Otis, as the security guard, walks up to the bodyguard and says, hey, man, you taking a long time. And so the bodyguard turns around, looks Ot- Otis in the face, and was like, you want some of this old man? And in the classic old Otis voice, he looks at him. He was like, I want, I- I want all of that there, boy. <laughs> and so they sitting there face-to-face, and he put his hand up. Ot- Otis puts his hand up. and He say, put your hand in there, boy. And they grab hands. They grab hands like they're in an arm wrestle. And then all of a sudden, old Otis starts saying, oh, Otis gonna take you down, boy. Oh, Otis gonna take you down, boy. And so this big bodyguard, the unexpected strength and the grip of old Otis, take this, takes this bodyguard down. And then he just like manhandles him. I promise you I have a point to this, okay? We oftentimes treat sin like we treat old Otis. We look sin in the face as though it's a small, weak, and insignificant thing. We treat it as though we can handle it on our own, but eventually it grips us with an unexpected grip, and it grips us with an unexpected strength, and it begins to pull us down, and before you know it, you are in a mess that you don't know how to get rid of. Listen, if you are not killing sin, sin will be killing you. If you are not killing sin, sin will be killing you. It will take you further than you want to go. It will keep you longer than you want to stay, and it will cost you more than you want to pay. But how do we kill it? How do we kill sin? How do we lay aside these weights, and how do we lay aside the sin that's clinging to us We must gaze at Jesus in the gospel. Look at the rest of verse 1 and 2 with me. He says, and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God other translations use the language of fix your eyes on Jesus. But notice that Jesus is the only thing that the author tells us to look to or to fix our eyes on. In other words, yes, we should take a quick quick glance at those who have run this race before us and those who are running this race alongside of us, but it is insufficient in and of itself to just look there. Yes, we should fight to get rid of weights and fight to get rid of sins, but that is impossible without gazing at Jesus in the gospel. For in Titus 2 chapter or in Titus chapter 2 verses 11 and 12, he says that the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people and training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions, and to live self-controlled upright and godly lives in this present age this grace of god that has appeared and that is bringing salvation and training us to deny sin and to live godly lives is the gospel which means that not we are not only saved by the gospel we are also sanctified by the gospel this echoes the words of jesus in john six thirty five when he says i am the bread of life he who comes to me will never hunger, and he who comes to me will never thirst." One author says it like this. This verse in his literal translation means a continual coming to Christ, a continual feasting and believing in Christ. So as we perpetually feast on Jesus and all His blessings in the gospel, our hunger for sin simply diminishes and loses its appeal. Therefore, the degree to which we are full on Jesus Christ in the gospel will be the degree to which we experience freedom from weights and sins in our life. and, and, And also, it goes on to say that Jesus is the founder and the finisher of our faith. Without Jesus, there would be no Christianity. He alone is the cornerstone, the bedrock, the basis upon which everything has been built and whom everything is about. Without Jesus, there would be no good news, for he alone has done everything necessary to save humanity by living the life we could not live, dying the death we deserve to die, and raising from the dead three days later to defeat sin and death. And it was was Jesus who endured the shame and rejection and wrath on the cross because of the joy that was set before him. It was this joy of Jesus fulfilling the will and the plan of God. It was this joy of Jesus gathering for himself, of people of all nations, from every tribe, tongue, and nation, to be gathered with him and worship him around the throne. And it was the joy of returning back to the glorious presence of his father where he left to come and save humanity. And it's also his sacrifice that purchased our joy. Because of his willingness to endure the wrath of God for us, we share in the joy of Christ. We share in the joy of looking forward to that day when we will be with our God, and, we will, and he, will be, he will be our God, and we will be his people. And in his presence, there is the fullness of joy and pleasures forevermore. We look forward to that day when there's an inheritance that is undefiled and not perishing that is waiting for us, imperishable uh, crown of glory that is waiting for all the body of Christ who would believe in Jesus. It's the joy of being free from the presence of sin, from the power of sin, from the sorrow of this world. It's the joy of having all of our tears wiped away. It's the joy of worshiping with brothers and sisters from all nations. This joy was purchased by Jesus Christ, and that is good news. It's good news to know that our race, when we run it, is not in vain. That there's a joy set before us because there's a joy set before Jesus, and it's all because he chose to endure. Now, as I close, I'm reminded of the story that I shared with you in the beginning You know, for me, one of the most inspiring things about this story, isn't that Derek got back up to finish his race, but it's that his father is the one who carried him to the finish line. And you see, this encourages me because if Derek's imperfect daddy was willing to carry him to the finish line of the Olympic semifinal race, how much more is my perfect father, my perfect daddy? My perfect papa, willing to get me to the finish line of eternity. When you fail in your race, you remember that you have a father who is more committed to seeing you to the finish line than you are committed to getting there. Because he loves you. He loves you. And the work that he has begun in you, he will bring it to completion on the day of Jesus. And he is able to keep you from stumbling and to present you blameless before his presence with great joy. Amen? Let us pray. Father, our prayer is that as we gaze at the beauty of Jesus in the gospel, God, that you would help us to endure in our race. Let us run our race and let us finish our race. And we can only do that by the power of your spirit, by the power of the gospel. We thank you, Lord, in Jesus' name, amen.